So I was uh, inspired partly hearing from uh, Sylvia about uh, what she talked about last time. Uh, actually, we talked the day before uh, <laughs> about, uh, about her talk. And we also talked uh, yesterday. And I actually uh, heard her talk, downloaded it, and heard it, and was um, inspired and energized the way that she took the uh, idea of looking at the entire traditional path of practice, the Eightfold Path in the Buddhist tradition, uh, through the lens of kindness. Looking at e each of those aspects, particularly through the lens of uh, kindness. I like that a lot and was uh, also influenced by the fact that since I last saw you, I did a personal retreat for about two weeks and it was a uh, concentration retreat where I was uh, more or less just paying attention to the breath as I noticed it on my, around my upper lip for like 18 hours a day. <laughs> Which sounds, doesn't sound as good as it actually was. <laughs> so uh, it sounds like, you know, why not, you know, go to the beach or something. Two weeks just on the breath all that time. But it actually is quite uh, wonderful. And so I was inspired to uh, take the last part of the Eightfold Path, which are, is the part connected with meditation, which includes what we sometimes call wise effort or right effort, um, wise or right uh, mindfulness, and wise or right um, concentration, and to focus on those aspects of the, the path for these four weeks. And I was particularly wanting to start by looking some at the role of concentration in our practice and to do another exercise in a little while that can um, help to give a fuller sense of what that practice looks like and to explore the importance of concentration. I'll say more about the the word itself, because I think it's actually maybe better to talk about steadiness of mind or uh, unification of mind. Concentration may not be a great translation, but it's the usual one given. But to talk about that and to bring in questions of what is appropriate um, effort or what is appropriate level of energy in our practice, which is a huge question that we have both in daily life and when we're, we're on the cushion. So I wanted to focus on concentration uh, and bring in a lot on effort for the first two weeks and then look at mindfulness the uh, last two weeks. That's my intention right now. We may just get totally fascinated by concentration and um, distracted from mindfulness by being concentrated. So, um, so that's my intention. And I thought I'd just say a little bit about this larger model of the Eightfold Path, which, which is the traditional sense of how we, uh, how we practice. And again, practice is also a translation. Uh, but it's really, uh, you know, the words that are translated might be translated as cultivation. It's basically how we cultivate wonderful qualities in ourselves and how we work with the difficult 
states of mind and heart and body that come up. That's pretty much what we mean by practice, right? That's, it's how we work with the challenges. You know, and for many of us, the very notion that difficulties are workable is a revelation, right? Sometimes we may have thought in the past, difficulties are a curse, good things are a blessing, let's accumulate as many blessings as we can and try to get rid of the curses, right? That's the conventional model. But the idea that um, difficult situations are workable and in fact that we can actually learn from them is revolutionary. You know, personally, and I think if our culture would learn more about that, it would revolutionize the culture as well. We, um, yeah. So uh, that's, that's what we mean by practice. Traditionally, there were these eight aspects of practice that were named. And Sylvia talked about them in brief last time, that the, you know, the, the so-called path, again, these are all metaphors, practice, path, these are all metaphors. Path is a beautiful metaphor because it suggests that we can walk along a cleared place that goes in a certain direction. That's what the metaphor of path means. It might mean that before there was a path, there was just brush and wilderness, and it was hard to proceed. When there's a path, it's easier to proceed, and it also goes in a certain direction. The path goes in a certain direction, and in this particular path, it goes towards greater wisdom, greater understanding, greater compassion, love, and so forth, greater skill at being with what's challenging. So traditionally, those eight aspects of the path were divided into three segments, the first having to do with wisdom, the second having to do with what we might call ethics or living a life of integrity, and the third having more to do with meditation, for more, more uh, meditation both on and off the cushion, mindfulness and concentration and so forth. So uh, the first two aspects of this path are sometimes called right understanding or Sylvia talked last time about how we uh, tend to not use the word right, but tend to use the word wise, talk about wise understanding. And uh, I also think that right is a questionable translation. A lot of our translations from this tradition came, from, came around 1900 from Victorian England with a slight moralistic <laughs> bent. <laughs> if I could say that in a non-judgmental way. <laughs> um, and so, but, but actually, they're also questionable from a purely scholarly point of view. When you look to the word that's translate, that people translate as right, it, the word is sama, S-A-M-M-A. And I think a better translation would be mature or developed. It's related to the English words like summary or summation or Thomas Aquinas Summa Theologica. You know, it's like the summation or the, uh, the completion. Completion would also be a good word. So I think the word mature is actually a better literal translation. So that can be helpful. You know, we're always thinking, okay, write this, write that, write this, write that. Well, I think it's more, uh, it's really pointing towards mature understanding or mature way of living ethically 
or developed or realized or something like that. I think that's a better translation. And we, we tend to use wise often, which is better, but it's, it actually um, uh, kind of highlights more the wisdom aspect. And there's also the heart aspect, which is implied in the sense of maturity. So, um, and then the second, uh, there's wise understanding. And then there is wise intention, or we might say mature intention. Those comprise the wisdom aspects of the path. And there are three that comprise the ethical uh, dimensions that are named, uh, what we might call, I'll call it mature speech. Anyone have mature speech these days? <laughs> so a little bit. We're developing. So. This is, and, and so the focus is on speech, the focus is also on livelihood, and then the focus is on what's called uh, mature action, which really has to do with following the ethical guidelines or the ethical precepts. And then the third set is the set having to do with meditation, and that's where we find effort, concentration, and mindfulness, and that'll be the subject um, today and for the next weeks. And maybe just to say that this is the sense of path. I have a friend, uh, some of you may know, Santi Caro, who lives in Wisconsin, who was a monk in uh, Thailand for many years with Achan Buddha Dasa. And he once wrote a very wonderful essay where he said, well, what we need in these days, we need a noble uh, 14-fold path, at least. You know, eight is great, but 14 is better. You know, and he, so he was naming, okay, we should have mature relationship. <laughs> We should have mature education. We should have mature ecological living and so forth. So he kind of drew out some other dimensions. And maybe, maybe in 10 or 20 years, we'll um, add some of these other pieces or, or fit them under the existing categories. So what I'd like to do for the rest of the time now is to focus on uh, concentration uh, and bring in uh, some the dimension of effort and talk about what is wise effort, or what is mature effort, what is helpful effort, because that's a significant part. And, and um, maybe I should just say a little bit about the words, because the, uh, I think, again, the translation <coughs> of uh, samadhi is the word that we translate with concentration. And again, uh, you have some of the same roots there. Um, uh, samadhi has that same root, S-A-M, which again tends to mean a summary or a gathering. And so it's probably a better translation not to use concentration, which can imply, you know, I, I here need to focus there, you know, kind of, like, uh, kind of like a dualistic model. And the actual sense of what samadhi means is more that our being is unified. And so I would say maybe a better translation would be unification of mind and heart you know, is a, is a better translation of concentration. And I'll, I'll say more about uh, the word that's translated as effort, because I think that's also not a great translation. It's probably better maybe to call it energy or something like that. Effort makes it seem like I will summon all this energy and strive hard and so forth. And that's not quite so accurate as to what it means. So you see, we, know we not only have the challenges of practice, we also have to deal with translations and all the associations that they have, which, you know, it's not, uh, people can sometimes get knocked off course by taking the words in a certain way, certain meanings. So that's, that's important. 
So let's do a practice again, pretty much the same practice that we did before. We'll just do this again for four or five minutes. Uh, make yourself comfortable and relaxed. And hopefully we all know where the breath is easiest to follow. For some of us it can be the areas of the uh, nostrils or upper lip. For others it might be the belly or abdomen. Uh, For others it might be the area of the chest. And for some of us it may even be feeling the breath in the whole body. So hopefully we know that and just to, and if that's unclear, just take one of those uh, that seems like the best without, without needing to worry too much about it. And stay with uh, the sensations of breathing. First of all, connect with the sensations of breathing. Anytime the mind wanders, just notice that. But unlike in formal mindfulness practice, we don't need to name it and we don't need to stay with it. The moment we notice, we just come back to the breath and to the sensation. And so we stay with that as much as possible and uh, it's okay if the mind wanders, we just continually come back, but we try to just stay as much as possible in a steady way with the breath. So we'll just do this now and I'll probably make uh, one further come back uh, to the breath comment during our few minutes. We want to have a kind of relaxed but firm attention. So combining those two qualities, we want to be quite relaxed, not overly tense about being with the breath, but we also want to have that firmness of both staying with the breath and coming back continually.
just try to be alert for the moment that your mind wanders and then just come back. So most of us actually do some form of concentration practice when we begin meditation. Because even to do mindfulness practice, we bring in necessarily the kind of settling of attention. We can't really pay attention to the whole range of experiences unless the mind is somewhat steady and settled. So for many of us, we may do a form of what we might call samadhi practice or concentration practice or maybe I'll, I should, I should um, I'll just use the word uh, maybe samadhi, the original, and you can think unification of mind, that many of us do something like that right at the beginning of our sessions and maybe, maybe that's what we primarily do. I know for me, when I was first practicing, the first three years was primarily just doing what we did, what we just did. You know? and, uh, and so it's part of our ordinary practice, but it also can be a practice that we do for a period of time, for a session, for, you know, for a month, for a week, that we can just stay with that, uh, the object of meditation and just continually come back. And if something else takes our attention away, we just immediately come back and we give a little bit less focus on like being with where our mind goes. You know, with general mindfulness practice, we're asked to be with whatever's predominant. And so if I'm sitting here and I start hearing sounds, let's say, or if I'm at home and, you know, it's raining and I start hearing the sounds of rain, I might go to that in my in my practice and just stay with sound like that. Or if I'm feeling hunger and I feel sensations in my belly, my mindfulness practice, I would just, okay, it's predominant, I go there. With concentration practice, we would just stay with the breath unless something is like overpowering and can't be avoided. But even there, with concentration practice, we would stay, I'm using concentration again, I noticed <laughs> that word. Uh, also, I'd probably just say that because that's in, my, in the, the grooves of my mind. But with concentration practice, we would just stay with the breath. And it's a form of practice which has its advantages. Mindfulness practice is very crucial, but we would just stay with the breath. And if I was feeling sensations in my belly and they were kind of moderate or, or took my attention some, I would still just come back to the breath. Or if there were sounds, I would still come back to the breath. And this can actually develop the uh, concentration uh, a little more deeply. So there, there are a number of ways we can do that. You know, one way, probably the way that most of us 
work with concentration is through being with the breath. But there are a number of other forms. You know, classically, there were said to be 40 uh, different ways of developing concentration. You know, and probably we can point to some others. Loving kindness practice is a form of concentration practice where we use phrases and we just keep coming back to uh, may you be happy or may you be, be well. That's a kind of concentration practice. And when one does that a lot, the mind gets very still and steady. Or we could be with, um, we could be with something else in our experience. We could be with sound. Possibly, we could, if there was a. Con- I when I was first learning meditation, I would um, sit next to a creek in the mountains of Virginia, and just listen to the water for hours. It was a kind of concentration practice. I would just be with sound. When my mind would wander, I'd go right back to the sound. The sound was steady, and I didn't have to construct the object. I just stayed with it, and it led to a lot of subtleness. Um, also led to a lot of um, kind of heightened sensitivity to sound. So sometimes I'd wonder, was that a, was that a snake in the grass? <laughs> you know, so that was the main obstacle to my meditation, sitting by the, sitting by the creek. Because uh, there were also there were rattlesnakes there, so I had to be a little careful. So uh, we could do that. We could, we could do something visual. We could just be with a flame. You know, many traditions do different things. We could repeat. Um, we could repeat a phrase. We could repeat a prayer. Uh, chanting is a form of concentration practice. People who might chant the same thing continually, or we could visualize. In other many traditions, there's a visualization which one keeps steady in one's mind. Tibetan practice uses this a lot. You keep a visualization. You stay with it, and it uh, unifies the mind when you when you learn to do that. So. The, in, all of, in all of these methods, the approach is only do one thing. Only come back to the object continually. So there's a, quite a simplicity to the practice. There's not too much doubt about what to do. right? Uh, there may be doubt about what happens, but it's a very simple practice, this concentration practice. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it out is that it actually hasn't been taught very much in the West, interestingly. That concentration practice in itself has not been taught so much, um, much less than mindfulness, even though it was seen to be really crucial for development. So we, um, we have, there, there's this simplicity that comes with concentration, and I, I think there's a beautiful phrase from the philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, um, purity of heart is to will one thing. So when one actually is staying in with, with one object, you know, whether it's for half an hour or for a day or for longer, there's a way that we simplify and unify our consciousness in ways which can lead, I think as we know, to a sense of peace, to a, to a sense of um, steadiness, a sense of settledness. You know, and the reason, ultimately, that we do this is because that peace and settledness and steadiness uh, can let us, first of all, not be caught in the usual way, not be caught by our habitual thoughts, our reactions, uh, first, and then it lets us see more clearly. 
when we have that focused, steady mind, we can notice things more clearly. That's ultimately why we do this. It's um, peace and bliss are quite good also. <laughs> but, uh, but generally, <laughs> not to be underestimated, very healing actually. Though. So if you do a lot of concentration practice, there may be times when, when bliss and peace arises and it can feel tremendously nourishing and healing particularly if we've, we've had rough times or been very busy, we come from that, the ability to develop concentration can have this uh, soothing quality, this quality of a refuge, really. You know, a place that we can go where we renew ourselves. And so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful practice to, to develop. It has, has those uh, ability. It's, it's, a, it's something that both uh, cuts through distraction and unifies energy. That's what, that's what concentration does. There is, a, again, a, a 19th century Russian Orthodox teacher who said, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Uh, I think he was meaning warmth in the sense of love and care, but also in the sense of our, kind of our energy, of our being. That when we get distracted, when I, we disperse our energies, again, contemporary life very much uh, tends in many ways to distraction, right? I mean, a lot of, you know, to, you know, need I say more? <laughs> okay. um, you know, a lot of good things as well, but, but there's, there was, there's so many demands on our attention and we can feel pulled and pushed in hundreds of ways, you know, in just the level of information or just, uh, you know, just going on the internet, right? We can, we can feel it be very distracted. So, so when we develop this uh, concentrated mind and heart, we particularly can work through that which distracts us, that which really prevents us from seeing clearly. It's one of the, again one of the major reasons that we develop concentration because as we probably as we sit, as we <clears throat> sat maybe earlier in the morning, we may have experienced just all the usual things that take our attention away and make it hard to be with the breath. You know, whether it's um, all sorts of thoughts and plans, or this happened yesterday, or this will happen tomorrow, or or just daydreaming, or going towards something that we want, or saying, you know, where should I go for lunch today, or, you know, or any, any other examples that you have? <laughs> uh, so, but, and so our, our minds get, go in the, all these directions. You know, there's this traditional teaching that I think most of us know about, which is usually translated as the five hindrances. Again, I don't like the translation that much, we, I like to translate it as the five difficult energies. And these are basically what often take us away from being able to be attentive. And they're, they're being preoccupied with a kind of a compulsive wanting of something. Another one is being preoccupied by a compulsive pushing away of something. Could be, I don't like what's happening right now. Or it could be pushing away something that happened yesterday or getting, getting in an argument with someone. Um, another one of the so-called difficult energies is um, being sleepy, being 
being in a foggy state. Right? This makes it hard to see clearly, obviously. Uh, you know, the fourth of the so-called difficult energies is uh, restlessness. So the kind of sleepiness and what's classically called sloth and torpor. Remember, remember old, again, thank you, Victorian translators. <laughs> Who in the 21st century would ever tr- use sloth and torpor as a translation? <laughs> um, so uh, that, that's really like a, a low level of energy, whereas the restlessness, the energy is kind of too high and we're maybe anxious or restless. And that makes it also hard to be present. And the last of the difficult energies is doubt. You know, often the most pronounced of those is self-doubt. We sit here thinking, I'm not a meditator. Or I don't meditate enough. I should meditate more. Why don't I meditate more? <laughs> well, maybe I'm. Maybe I should just go to the gym more. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, and so, uh, in the both in the text and in experience, having that stability of mind, the steadiness, particularly cuts through those five energies, mm-hmm. because it's a unification. It's a kind of balancing of energy, so our energy gets more balanced. It's neither too low nor too, too restless. And we can actually see more clearly the compulsive energies, the, the wanting or the aversion. We can see those more clearly, and we notice them and we let them go. You know, so um, uh, concentration has those tremendous advantages. It lets us go in a way beyond those, those qualities into a more peaceful way of being where we can see more clearly. So that, again, many of us have, probably almost all of us have experienced that regularly. If we've been meditating regularly, we experience some of that steadiness of mind. And what the concentration practice helps us do is to deepen that ability. It's to deepen those qualities of peace and uh, settledness, steadiness. Uh, One of the great practitioners of the 20th century was a woman named Deepama. And Sylvia talks about her sometimes. And I met her. uh, She actually um, came and stayed where I was living for about a week. And I had to move out. (laughs) (laughs) But I was living at uh, the retreat center in Barrie, Massachusetts. And she came, this must have been 1980 or so, and I was living there for about six months, and I had a little cottage, and they asked, they didn't really ask, they requested, or they, they didn't really request. <laughs> they said, let's do this <laughs> uh, for, for her and, and her family to stay there for a week. So I moved out, but I got to meet with them a lot. And she, there's a book about her life uh, in the bookstore, which is quite beautiful, because she I think, again, I, I, I imagine that Sylvia talks about her quite a lot. And she, she started practice rather late in life, I think in her middle or late 40s. She'd had a great deal of family difficulties, deaths in her family, and was really in a lot of distress. And she found this meditation. She was living in uh, Calcutta, you know, and found this, found this practice somehow, because it's not widely spread, or it wasn't widely spread at that time in India. 
And she had a great affinity for it, and she went and studied a lot. And she was actually tremendously uh, skilled and gifted in meditation and practiced it for a number of years. I think she probably died. She probably was about in her 80s, I think. I'm not sure. And uh, near the end of her life, uh, Jack Kornfield interviewed her and said, what's in your mind? You know, what's your mind like? And she said, there are only three things. What do you think they are? <laughs> Maybe you know from Sylvia likes the story, but um, there are only three things in my mind. There's concentration, there's peace, and there's loving kindness. She was pretty nice to be around, <laughs> right? There was that steadiness that as concentration deepens, there is that peace, there is that, that, that quality of the open heart, there's a stillness, there's a kind of contentedness, there can be um, so many of these qualities, equanimity, you know, that lets us have this rested quality no matter what's happening. Equanimity is because there's a kind of deep stillness. Part of our being is still. It's like no matter what's happening, it's like the, what, the eye of the hurricane. Even when things are really rough or hard, there's some part of ourselves that can be still. Quite remarkable. You know, we probably know this from some people. You know, we can see it in certain people. You know, I know I've studied the life of Martin Luther King, uh, Jr., and he had that quality, you know, which actually um, came a lot from prayer, and there was this steadiness. There's a steadiness. Many of our great uh, leaders and teachers have a certain steadiness inside. I think uh, President Obama has that, actually. He has, he has a, a certain inner steadiness. I think I remember that was the subject of uh, some very uh, wonderful Saturday night nightlife takeoffs with of Sarah Palin complaining about how steady he was. But <laughs> go back and look at them. They're really fun. Go back and look at them. <laughs> so, um, so there are these tremendous benefits. There's also with deep states of concentration, there can be tremendous bliss and pleasure, which as I, as I said earlier, can actually be tremendously healing. That concentrated states, as we develop them, can be both physically and emotionally healing when we when we are there. So there's some advantages. It's really as we find, you know, what we find as we develop in concentration to those deeper levels is that our very being, when we're in contact with it, brings peace and bliss. We don't, and again, it can really help tremendously with this core teaching that we get in all sorts of ways that our deepest well-being doesn't come from looking externally for anything. That when we rest deeply in our own core, there is a fundamental peace and there can be a deep bliss, you know, and, you know, I'm sure the scientists will tell us more, you know, about what, you know, that that concentrated states bring the activation of this part of the brain and the endorphins kick in tremendously and you have a, you know, a cheerleading parade or something. <laughs> you know, rah, 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 you know, bliss, bliss, bliss. <laughs> and, and so, but that's possible, you know, and I think that's, that's one, again, one of the benefits of, of concentration. 
So I'll just say a little bit more and then we'll have a little bit of discussion, a little bit about what wise effort means in the context of concentration. Because what I'll be doing is inviting you to, if you wish, to bring this into your practice in the next week. And I'll say a little bit more about how to do that. But the, um, the key really is to, in our meditation practice, is to have both that firmness and a relaxed quality. It's somewhat paradoxical that the deepest concentration takes both effort and a kind of firm coming back, in this case, to the object, but it also takes a deep relaxation and something that we kind of have to work out personally just by experience, really. That's what, what, that's what I found. Uh, but it's this continual coming back, being relaxed but very alert, you know, which is, again, the hallmark of our practice is to have relaxation but alertness. Usually we don't bring those together, right? Alertness means a little bit of straining and relaxation means falling into uh, not, so, not so much clarity or not so much alertness. We try to bring those together. And I think I'll probably I'll say more about, about um, the quality of effort next time and maybe, maybe stay with that. But I wanted just to say two more things. One is that there's another aspect of concentration which I think is more related to uh, our lives outside of formal meditation. And that is that you know, the, the qualities of focus and simplicity are really crucial in our overall lives. You know, that so many of us are, are pulled in different directions. And I know when I do one-on-one work with people, it's such a huge issue for many people how can I really live by my deepest values? How can I really have my priorities straight? And I think in some sense this is a question of concentration or focus, or we could say samadhi. How can my life be unified so that I'm not going here, going there? How can I simplify? Again, this is what I find in talking with people. How can I simplify so that I really attend to what's most important? such a central issue for all of us, really. You know, where we are, we know, where do we put our energy? Do we put our energy into what's most important? And I think there's a quality of samadhi or concentration practice that we can apply to our lives. Like who ask, how can I, are there, how can I simplify so I really do what's most important? Are there things I want to let go of? or drop in order to be more in congruence with my deeper values. Again, not a, not a quick resolution for most of us, but a very fundamental question. And for me, there is a strong connection with this formal concentration practice because they're all, they're, they're, they are about this uh, simplifying and focus so that we have this, almost like this... Um, way of living in which the, in which distraction is not there in the same way. So I wanted to add that piece. So what I, what I invite for next week, if you feel drawn to do this, there are a few options. And uh, one option would be to look at that question of um, priorities. You know, and it could be through reflection to look, does that make sense for me? 
if I was to simplify and unify my life, are there steps I would take? And I know probably most of us are reflecting on these sort of things a lot anyway, but it might be to give a little more energy to those reflections. In the realm of meditation, it could mean taking half of your practice time or really make a commitment in the next week to do a certain amount of practice where you do something like what we just did in those five-minute sessions, where you really try to stay really steadily and develop a little further in concentration. That's one way to do it. Do it it for a whole session. Do it for half of a session. In a given session, have five minutes where you do, maybe you do that once or twice, where you have special effort to stay with the object. That can be very helpful. Sometimes we, we can do it well for five minutes at a time, and it's harder for half an hour. So those are a few options, you know, and we can do other, again, you can do different practices. Some of you may want to do more loving-kindness practice. Some of you may want to be with the breath. You know, you can do it in walking meditation to just be with, uh, you can uh, sometimes just stay with the breath. You know, when I did my two-week retreat and was just focused with the breath, I stayed with the breath no matter what was happening. So I stayed with the breath when I was eating. I stayed with the breath when I was walking. And it's okay for the breath to be like in eating 20 or 30% of the attention. You know, with some of it almost necessarily, we're not trying to make it go to the food, but, you know, it happens. And so when I was doing this retreat, if you, and you, some of you may want to do a few hours of this where you, where you eat and you just stay with the breath. Or you just, we, we do the same thing when we're doing loving-kindness practice. In retreats, we just have people stay with loving-kindness when they're eating. It doesn't mean that it's 100% in the foreground, but we try to keep it in the foreground and let the other, what else is happening, be more in the background. So I'll invite that to see, you know, see if that calls to you to work with this. And I'll, next time I'll um, bring in some more material on that and probably tell some stories. I'll tell a little bit more about my personal experience next time. So let's just sit for a moment and we have a little bit of time for discussion. Any questions or reflections? Um, Cynthia, please. I wonder if, um, is this the same thing as jhana practice? Um, The question is, is this the same thing as jhana practice? Uh, um, Concentration is a more general term, samadhi practice. Um, uh, Jhana is a term for uh, very deep states of concentration that are talked about in the ancient text and that are possible to access when one for most people when they um, do quite a bit of, uh, you know, mostly in retreats. 
so not, not so accessible for, for almost everyone in daily life. But they're very deep states of just being <coughs> with the object, the breath or metta, you know, the phrases, the metta quality, and just staying with that so much that one can stay with it, you know, without almost any thoughts, maybe for, could be for half an hour or an hour, and you're so focused on it. And then when that happens, there are certain inner states which develop, which are quite uh, beautiful and um, powerful. Yeah. Uh, please. Yeah, yeah yes. Yeah, the question is, is there anyone who has kind of brought together discussion of the various phrases and maybe the challenges of older translations and desirability of newer ones, something like that? I'm not aware of anyone who's done that systematically. Many translators, like someone like Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translated, who's done the major contemporary translation of all the discourses of the Buddha, if you look in his work, he probably has accounts for his choices, you know, and has a glossary. So that'd be one way to look. And he has some, um, I think his are fairly much, fairly standard from my memory. And uh, yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of what I said today comes actually just from my own knowledge and my own experience. It's not, I didn't read it anywhere. You know, it's just from, Maybe, maybe I heard somewhere, you know, the, the meaning. I, you know, I know that you know, one of the interesting things is that um, these words for, uh, are in the Pali language, which is an Indo-European language, which means a lot of the roots are not so different from a lot of words we may know from uh, European language, languages, like the word sama being related to summary, right? That's, it's, uh, so we have some clues there. Yeah. Uh, please. Yeah. Um, question is, is it helpful just to stay with one object, like the breath or metaphrases or something else, or can one vary them? Um, in a retreat, or probably in doing practice, it would be good to experiment with just choosing one. You know, probably, ultimately, that's a personal question. You'll just have to see how that works for you, and you know, and, and experiment with it. But if I was guiding someone, I would, you know, certainly in a retreat, I would say just stay with one. And I would experiment, just stay with one for a month, see what that's like. And then maybe, uh, you know, if you do two, you know, like if you do the breath and then loving kindness, that's, that probably would be fine. Some, because it brings out different aspects of our, our being. Does that help some? Okay. Uh, please. Um, in, in the concentration, um, in the breathing, I am... Um, shifting it up between um, sitting by the ocean, just did a silent retreat here, 
and the concentration is taking me into a place of deep, deep grief. Yeah. Yep. And um, on the one hand, it's I, I can feel my heart just opening up more and more. Yeah. On the other hand, there there's some fear in there. You know, what will happen to me when I get to the bottom of this grief? Yeah. Will there be anything left of me? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know if you can speak to that just in sort of, you know, an affirming way of saying, oh, it's all right, mind. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, dear. Okay. Remind me of your name? Julia. Julia. Yeah. So Julia's question was about the... <laughs> As her concentration has been deepening, she's been opening up to quite uh, profound grief, and you know naturally has a concern: if I stay with this, uh, where will this lead? Will I be kind of spat out on the beach? <laughs> you know, she does a lot sitting by the beach, um, and how to how to work with that. And I'm going to talk more about that next time because part of, uh, but I'll say I'll say some now. Because part of, um, part of what happens when we do concentration practice is that there's a kind of a purification process which goes on and things which are beneath the surface or haven't surfaced for various reasons, often because we're just too busy, uh, or parts of ourselves which are um, kind of uh, unworked out, we might say, or unconscious those do come to the surface and concentration practice is traditionally often talked about as a kind of purification. I'll say more about that word because it, it can't, that, again, that can be a problematic word for some people, but meaning that things come up that were not necessarily conscious. And I experienced that someone just in my two weeks. I experienced periods of grief. The general... Um, you know, it, it can be helpful if you're touching that to, first of all, it's completely normal and natural, right? You know, and, and, and I think you probably know that, that it's just uh, sometimes when we get more quiet, things which we didn't attend to come up. You know, that's just the, it's actually a great benefit. So what would be important would be to have support for that process. It could be your, both your own inner support and maybe support from others, you know, to know what to do. Generally, when deeper states like that come up and are very strong when we're doing concentration practice, we would shift to mindfulness practice and maybe compassion practice. Okay. So we'd use other tools if, they, if it's very strong. If it's kind of on the sideline and in the, on, in the background, we might just stay with the concentration when it's quite strong, so to the point that it's just there in a way that lasts over time we would actually move away from concentration practice and be with it using mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion, you know, maybe some guidance and so forth. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, and so to make it really uh, workable. And, and so, uh, so the key when those challenging states come up is if, if they are kind of taking us away and we're not mindful and we're just kind of lost in them, Pull back. That's kind of we, you know, that would be similar. Sometimes we, in the language of trauma, we'd say it's re-traumatizing. But when one's mindful, then you can actually heal. But if you're kind of lost in it and it's taking you away, then pull, try to pull out of it because that that's not so helpful. That's a key distinction. Yeah. Thank you. And maybe maybe we'll. Is that enough for Very now? Yeah. So we can look more into that larger question next time. I'll talk more about. <laughs> <laughs>
some of how this process of purification occurs, you know, both in very ordinary, everyday ways and, and some of these deeper ways. Yeah, thank you, Julia. Okay, maybe last one, then we'll, then we'll have to finish up. Can you explain briefly the difference between mindfulness and concentration? Yeah. Um, the question is, a brief, <laughs> a, a brief discussion of the difference between mindfulness, mindfulness and concentration. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll say more about that next time, because that's an important question. And there actually are different views on that. But I'll, I'll tell you, just to be brief, my own understanding. Um, technically, as a meditation form, concentration would be just to stay with one object. And not, it do, wouldn't involve the quality of investigation. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be, let me really explore what the breath is like, what this is like. It wouldn't uh, involve, uh, it, would be, it wouldn't be looking to other objects that come up. You know, if I'm just with the breath and I have an emotion come up, I would just bring my mind back. I wouldn't say, okay, there's sadness or there's joy. And so from a point of view of formal meditation, that's what, the way we would do concentration practice. We wouldn't do what we typically speak of in terms of mindfulness practice, that is, being with multiple objects. Mindfulness practice, we can be, in a given session, we can notice 30 different objects, right? Object meaning what we're attending to, the breath, body sensations, thoughts, uh, emotions, you know, memories, planning, all sorts of different thoughts. And with mindfulness, we try to say, okay, there was a planning thought, okay? Okay, another planning thought, okay? Oh, now I feel my knee, you know, and then I go to that. So. Uh, with mindfulness, we'd have multiple objects, and we'd be actually interested in both seeing what was there, and ultimately we'd be interested in seeing uh, some of the quality, you know, we'd be interested in seeing some of the qualities of our experience, such as we'd be tuning in to impermanence, we'd be tuning in, trying to see some of the larger patterns of experience as well. And that, that actually, so that's where mindfulness would lead to uh, greater self-understanding and greater freedom. Now, having said that they're different in that way, doing concentration practice, we necessarily are cultivating mindfulness practice because we do notice. We don't stay with where we went, but we notice that it happened. That's mindfulness, right? Mindfulness brings us back to the object. And so there's a lot of mindfulness involved with concentration practice. And then to do mindfulness practice, we need a certain level of concentration and stability. So they're in, I would see them as interwoven. And mature concentration has a lot of mindfulness, and mature mindfulness has a lot of concentration. That's the short answer. <laughs> okay. okay, thank you. So uh, how many of you would like to give some attention to this concentration in one of the ways that I mentioned in the next week? Okay, okay. Uh, that'd be fantastic if we could and take some notes. Say what you find, bring some questions, and we can continue. I'll talk more, probably uh, talk about a few things. Among them, the way that concentration practice can potentially be purifying in a certain sense, and some of the issues that Julia brought up, and also the relationship between concentration practice and mindfulness practice. But I'll talk more, and I'll, I, I will give some of my own stories. Okay, so let's just sit quietly to finish. Let any of your insights from the, the morning 
related to the theme or perhaps totally not related, something that was helpful for you. Any insights and any intentions for the next period of time, let those be there. And then we finish in the way we typically do by offering what's called a dedication of merit, which is really to say that we recognize that we do this practice, these different practices, this inquiry, both for ourselves and for others. And we offer really in our interactions, in the rippling effect of our lives, we offer the benefits of our practice to all those we meet and more generally out into the world for the benefit of all. So thank you for your concentrated attention. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.